This is the PBE Podcast, where we were the virtual hosts of an evening with the 2022 Texas Railroad Commissioner candidates. The event hosts that made this possible were the PBS SEPM and the Permian Basin Association of Pipeliners. Our VIP table sponsors was Arias, Elevated Electrical Services, and Ameripex Services Group. Table sponsors were American Safety Services Incorporated in Salisbury. Our diamond sponsor was Barrel Oil and Gas, and our gold sponsor was Liberty Lift. I'm very, very grateful that the PBAP chose me to represent, and we're we're super happy to be here with PBS SEPM, and we're excited to educate the community in this room on the candidates for the Texas Railroad Commission, what their stance are, and what solutions they're bringing to the table. That's right. So with that, we will ask that our dear friend, Mr. Patrick Payton, come to the stage, and he is going to lead us in a, a quick prayer and a remembrance of Mr. Marvin Summers. Thank you, guys. Let me ask all of you to stand, if you would, since we, we, we will be standing here in, in remembrance of Sarge. And to all you candidates, um, congratulations that you're campaigning. Thanks for just getting in the ring. And uh, it takes, uh, sometimes you think you get in it and this is going to be fun, and now you're campaigning and realize somebody lied to me. <laughs> so uh, just thanks for getting in the arena. A lot of people complain. You'll have disagreements and you'll have uh, fights with each other or whatever it might be, but in the end, uh, it's, it's those of you who step up to the plate and uh, put your name in the hat and say, let's get after it. So thanks for what you're doing. I know you have long hours, long days, and uh, again, I'm just thankful I'm not campaigning right now. So uh, let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for uh, the fellowship and the food that we have already shared, uh, catching up with friends, having great discussions, and we just want to begin by asking you to bless the remainder of this evening. Everyone in this room has been impacted in one way or another by the passing of a dear friend, uh, Sarge Summers. And um, like myself, I know many of us uh, woke up one morning and were double-checking what we were reading and what we were seeing, and now are dealing with the grief of loss as his, his wife is as well and his family. And so we just pray for your grace and your mercy and your peace to be upon them. And would you also continue to remind us of just how precious life is. And at any moment, we just have no idea what can happen. So those who are nearest and dearest to us, would you put it upon our hearts to make sure we don't leave a moment where we don't express love and we don't express kindness. And we make sure that the people closest to us know how much we love them. I also thank you that uh, just watching Sarge from where I did, only meeting him very, very few times and. I just remember even the last time we talked, he was considering getting into this race and, and just having a small conversation about that. In the midst of all that, I thank you for everything I have seen and known of him. And obviously, he's posted several times about his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I thank you so much that we stand here with that, um, that joy and that peace, even in the midst of our grief. And finally, I pray for these candidates. Uh, I know what they're going through. I know what it feels like. I know what the grind is like. But like I expressed just a minute ago, I thank you for putting it on their hearts to get in the game, to get in the arena, to get in the fight, and to do it for all the right reasons, to serve this great region, to serve this great state, and to serve this great industry. Would you bless them and bless this night? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mayor Patrick Payton. It's important what just happened, right? My eyes were closed, my heart was pounding. I'm like, wow, you know, we're here. We're talking about this. It's, 
And it's important what just happened. And I appreciate that. You know, a word that rings, I think, with all of us is repent. And a dear friend of mine just taught me a little bit about that. And kind of my source is, you know, his lips. And he says, you know, repent in, in the original term is to change the way you think. To, is repent. To change the way you think. Challenge that. You know, embrace that. Change the way you think. We need to embrace the change that's upon us, right? The future of the oil and gas industry is very exciting. There's a lot happening. And in the next six years, these primary candidates right now are going to talk about this right now. It's a big deal. It's a big time. So I, I challenge. Just change the way you think for tonight. I think that's a great way to open. Thank you, Troy. This episode is brought to you by Bell Geospace. Bell Geospace has the gravity data that you need in the Permian Basin to see the structures below your reservoir, to see the structures in the reservoir and above. It's all connected. It all has a lot to say and a lot to do with how much oil, brine, or gas you're getting. You need the data to make better wells. You got to contact Julianne Sharples, jsharples at bellgeo.com or go to bellgeo.com. Check out their data. Check out what they're providing in their FTG, full tensor gravity gradiometry. The data is very high resolution. We did an exciting show, episode 91 with Bell Geospace, interpreting some of that data. Contact them today. Drill better wells. Let's go. This episode of PBE Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Geolog. Geolog offers cost-effective, lab-quality, quantitative, real-time formation evaluation and reservoir characterization solutions to improve well placement, production forecasting, and optimizing of completions. They even have a service that can monitor bitware while drilling. I've actually utilized their services while drilling wells in the Permian Basin and we were highly impressed with the data acquisition process and the quality of the interpretations. These guys at Geolog are passionate about the data they collect each day at every well site. They've been doing it for 40 years. They are passionate about drill cuttings, passionate about mud gas data, passionate about what the data means and how the data can add value to an asset. They probably collect the most amount of drill cuttings and mud gas data globally each day of any privately owned surface mug logging company. Geolog always employ a consistent quantitative analytical methodology, whether on the well site or back at the lab. So data collected at one well can be compared in another well. We'll be doing a podcast with Dr. Guy Oliver, Geolog's Director of Energy Transition and Data Science, who will be talking more about what Geolog does and diving more into the types of data they collect. We'll go ahead and, and start, Tom, with you if you want to do a brief introduction and, and kind of tell us a little bit about your oil and gas experience and knowledge and how does your experience in the industry relate to the Texas Railroad Commission and make you the ideal candidate? Uh, so my name is Tom Slocum, and <clears throat> I live in Houston, Texas. I grew up down the road from here in Brownfield, Texas. I'm fourth generation oil and gas. I'm fifth generation Texan on my mother's side. My father's side is from Louisiana, and uh, my whole family's been in the oil field. This is all we know. And I've worked in the oil field in college. That's the first time I ever started doing it when I was at A&M. I worked in a cement lab. It cements uh, solutions and 
in Houston, Texas for a guy named Fred Savings who used to run the cement lab in Halliburton in Duncan, Oklahoma. And that's where I learned a lot about oil field cementing. And uh, just so happens my father, that's what he did a lot of for Halliburton fracking and my grandfather and my great uncle Joe. So oil field cementing in, in my family, it goes back all the way back to the 30s. And so this is not something that I ever really thought I'd be in. I thought I would maybe be a lobbyist for oil and gas one day, but I, I started out pumping cement just like the rest of my family did. And now I see what's going on. I see what's going on with the new Green Deal. I see what's going on with high gas prices, and I see what's going on with BlackRock. I'm never going to take any money from them, I promise you that. And I'm never going to take any money from these windmill companies either. They're making rotten deals with these counties. So I see a lot of problems right now and corruption, but I also see a lot of taxing that's going on too. And uh, you know, they, they call it securitization in Austin. That's what Republicans are calling it. But that's a tax, and it's $3.4 billion on the natural gas bills. There's a big difference between Wayne Christian and I. We, we, you know, he says he's very conservative. I am very conservative, okay? I can tell you, because I'm swinging a bigger stick when it comes to the New Green Deal. I want statewide bonding for windmills, and I know the Railroad Commission doesn't have anything to do with that, but I'm going to make every Republican in Texas get them on the record about it. I've already gotten three candidates for state senate on the record here uh, at the Odessa Country Club a couple of weeks ago about that $3.4 billion. I asked him, if you're elected in this open seat, would you all vote for 3.4? No. None of them would. You won't find a Republican in the state of Texas that will. All right, you're not going to find one Republican in the state of Texas that says they would have voted for that $3.4 billion or that they'll do it in the future because they know it's a tax. And they know they should have worked within the budget of $15.8 billion, record amount we took in last year. Usually it's 11 or 12. Before all that money got to Austin, Greg Abbott had it spent. He told them, you're all voting for this tax. Come up with a name for it. Well, they called it securitization. It's a tax. Anyhow, uh, you know, I could go on and on. I don't know, is that three minutes? I think you were right at it. That was You're perfect, right actually. Thank you, All Tom. right. That's the brief introduction, guys, but we'll go down the road further. Go ahead. All right, Sarah, we'll move on to you. Do you need me to repeat the question? Who I am and what I'm doing, right? Pretty, pretty close, yeah. So oil and gas experience and knowledge, how your experience in the industry is related to the Texas Railroad Commission and why you'd be the ideal candidate. Oh, um, I ride pump jacks. No. Um, <laughs> Now that's out of the way. Uh, my name is Sarah Stockner. <laughs> I, I was born and raised in, I was a civilian army brat. My dad's an aerospace engineer. My mom's a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. So I grew up in Florida, California, Alabama. I come from a family of engineers, thought I wanted to be an engineer. Took calculus my senior year <coughs> of high school after I had applied to all of the great engineering schools and realized, holy cow, I do not want to be an engineer. Uh, and I really liked economics, so LSU sent me a letter. They said, hey, come do spring testing. With my AP credits, I graduated undergrad in three years, went straight through to law school, graduated law school in 08, and started out at a large firm doing um, downstream toxic tort. So, you know, methyl ethyl bad stuff gets released, 8,500 people nearby, and it's amazing, like, that one day on I-20, it's like, woo, there was 85 times the number of people that were allegedly on the interstate that day. But, you know, I, I really cut my teeth on large mass tort, and then uh, left, went to a smaller firm, and started doing mostly oil and gas blowout coverage work. So the way I describe it is, you know, we all buy our well control insurance, we go to drill a well, and something really bad happens, depending on how many zeros are at issue, is how long people will fight. Because if it's cheaper to hire lawyers than it is to just pay what you owe, people will fight 
with lawyers as long as they can until the pain is enough that both sides are like, I don't really like paying lawyers, and then they figure out something in the middle and nobody's happy. And so uh, really took that into master service agreements, indemnities, and a few years ago was so frustrated with if one more person tells me, well, little lady, that's the way it's always been done, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it, and do you not know what industry standards are? And I was like, I don't give a flying what industry standards are. I'm not taking responsibility for your frack fleet. I have no insurance for this, um, right? Like, let's get to the common sense stuff. So. Uh, Long story short, moved out onto a ranch last summer. A week in, a well that had been plugged in the 90s was flowing 10-pound brine. I had mm. represented an entity that had spent millions of dollars on calcium chloride, and we had fought about whether or not the calcium chloride was covered, so I knew what 10-pound brine meant. And uh, looked at the Railroad Commission and was like, yeah, this is bad. What are you guys going to do about it? And they're like, mm, I don't know. Okay. And... Uh, a week later, they lawyered up against the landowner, and I thought that the state only lawyered up against you if you were a suspected criminal, but that's not true. If you're a landowner and you've got oil and gas assets, they will lawyer up against you too. And realized um, we have issues at the very highest levels of government and in private entities, and I love this industry. I have been so proud to represent oil and gas operators. We do amazing things for the world. But um, we've got to clean up our act, and I've made a mafia analogy. Let's keep it in the family, anybody but Wayne. So if I'm not your cup of tea, this guy's qualified, this guy's qualified, we have an uprising within our industry, and we've got to keep it in the family. So well, thank thanks. you, Sarah. We're going to go ahead and move on. Dwayne Tipton. Hey, hello, Midland. How are you guys doing tonight? Let's Come go. on, live and right. <laughs> So uh, my name is Dwayne Tipton. Uh, I started in oil and gas in 2003 right here in Midland. You know, I got my engineering degree and I went to roughnecking. So it's always, it, Midland's always had a special place in my heart. After working really hard and doing what others wouldn't, I moved up the ranks. I was a assistant driller, a derrickman, a tool pusher. With more hard work and, you know, really filling out the industry, I became uh, the subject matter expert for the largest oil and gas insurer in the world. So what that means for you guys is, when it comes to operations in Texas, I've either been boots on the ground or I'm the guy that's making the recommendations to the operators to improve their operations. So I got a really great knowledge. After my time at Allianz, uh, I was employed by GE Oil and Gas and I was the guy they tasked with making changes to their inspection and maintenance program for their well control equipment. You know, remember Deepwater Horizon? I was the guy that GE tasked to make sure that that didn't happen with their equipment. And, you know, from there, you know, just more, more oil and gas experience, more work, just progressing through my career. But enough of the boring stuff. Let's talk about what I'm going to do for you guys if I'm elected. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to ensure that the natural gas grid is winterized, you know. We're not going to leave the Texans out in the cold if, I, if I'm elected, right? We shouldn't have ever gotten the situation we were in. We needed, we needed the railroad commission in there that had a little foresight and had a little forethought and would reach out to ERCOT and say, hey, we know that you're shedding load. Maybe you don't cut this natural the power of this natural gas resources. The second thing I'm going to do is I'm going to overhaul the inspection arm of the Railroad Commission. I'm going to use the, the skills I learned at the insurance company and at GE to push forward database, trend-based analytics. And you say, well, why does that affect me? Well, one, it's going to cut the cost of it. 
Two, you're going to have a more data-driven and really reactive railroad commission. But if, if that doesn't really touch to you, I'll tell you what, I, what else I'm going to do is when you call your district office and you need help from them, they're not going to act like it's a hassle. They're going to act like they work for you and they're happy to help you. Finally, I'd like to touch on to what Tom touched about with the $3.4 billion of securitization. You know, he's got it pretty close on. Uh, one thing that he, he kind of leaves out, I'm not sure if he's aware, but it's the Railroad Commission got an application from 11 natural gas companies to do the securitization of the debt. So it is a tax, and what he says is right, but they approved it before they approved that debt passing on to you guys. How much time do I have left? Mm. Like 18 seconds. So basically, just to wrap it up in a nice, uh, nice, nice nutshell is, my name's Dwayne Tipton. I'm a blue-collar guy. I've worked really hard for everything I have. And if you elect me, I'm going to do that for you. Thank you, Dwayne. We appreciate that. All right, Jamie, you are our last candidate this evening. Hello, good afternoon. I'm, wondering, I'm sure that everyone's wondering who is this kid sitting up here. And uh, so my name's Jaime Andres Diaz. I'm the Libertarian candidate for our commissioner. Um, so I'm from Brownsville, Texas. I went to a Catholic high school over there. When I graduated, I ended up going to school in George Washington for a bit. I worked with uh, my local congressman over there, Philemon Vela. And I ended up getting kind of disgusted with the whole political scene. After there, I, well, I ended up transferring to SMU in Dallas. I studied mechanical engineering there. And I had a great time there. Uh, we, um, during, during my studies, I was able to do two senior design projects, one of which being with the Native Americans in New Mexico at the Picaris Pueblo. And we were doing water rights work there for them. So we were taking lots of soil cores, water samples, and we were trying to basically match up chemical signatures to see you know, which water sources irrigated which fields, and then measure the isotopic decay to be able to basically date when that water source was last used. Um, my second senior design was with Epirock, so that they do a lot of surface mining. So we helped automate their uh, drill bit changing process. And that's basically all the oil and gas experience that I have. Uh, sorry about that. But, but um, when I graduated, I ended up moving back home. Um, I mean, I love my family. I, I want to be close to them, so I moved back. You know, I've been working miscellaneous jobs. I've done software implementation, scrap metal sales. And at one point, I was working as a market analyst for a firm based out of Monterey, Mexico. Uh, during COVID, I had a lot of time to think to myself and um, got me down the libertarian rabbit hole. I understand that most people here probably won't vote libertarian because you know you don't want to vote libertarian then the democrat wins it right so um i mean i, I just um, hope that all of you just just listen to the ideology and um and, and yeah i mean i think we're all kind of tired with the politics we just want to live our lives and and a big part of that's just making the government a little bit smaller thank you thank you jamie i appreciate that and we we appreciate that troy and i talked about that quite a bit last week and you know our, our point in being here tonight is not to sway any individuals one way or the other, but more so to educate and to help everybody have a, a broader understanding. We have an announcement. You have a QR code that's on the table. So or it's like, if you're virtual, there is a QR code on your TV screen. There is. You're looking at it. If you scan your phone like you're at a restaurant and they don't have a you can't touch my menu policy, right? <laughs> Uh, you scan it and it's going to pop up and what's going to happen is it's going to ask for the questions that you want answers to or the concerns that you want it to hear about. So second question, and I think it's safe to say we should start with Miss Sarah. Ooh, okay. okay. Where harm is caused by regulation, 
Should the responsible officer official be subject to suit for damages caused to the victims or should they have sovereign immunity from liability for their actions? So if I can just ex elaborate that a little bit more. Yeah, please, because okay. when I read this originally, uh, yeah, I have, a qu I have questions, but yeah. Please. Okay, here's an understand. Here's my understanding. Where harm is caused by regulation, where a policy by the Railroad Commission ends up causing harm to the operator or to the person that lives there, a policy or the regulation, right, has caused harm in the situation. That's what we're talking about. In my, that's what I'm understanding from this. So the question is, you know, how does your, um, I'm sorry, uh, should the responsible official be subject to suit for damages caused to their victims or should they have sovereign immunity from liability for their actions? Because you know what? It was a policy, right? That's how I'm understanding this. This was a policy in place. The operators ran by that policy. It did cause harm. What's the answer fault? to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking, I'm trying to think of a hypothetical, right? Like, where would this apply? And I'm probably thinking of maybe completing a well, you get a frack hit, something like that. I got an like example that. for you. Yeah, please. So, something called the white oil scandal in the 80s, supposedly, right? We did this on a podcast with Mark Hinkhouse. The operators there were in a gas field, and you can drill one gas well for 640 acres. One gas well per 640 acres. An operator figured out a way to condense the fluid. They froze it with nitrogen and tanks at the surface, and they froze it. They made it dense, the gas, and it made a fluid. It made a white oil. And they said, this is an oil well, not a gas well. But what that really did was allowed them to drill 64 wells per 640 acres. <laughs> You had one gas well holding 640 acres, and all of a sudden you had an operator drilling 64 wells in one 640 section, and that what happened was it drained the pressure. The pressures that were bringing this gas and this operator had like 50 MCF a day, and it was just coming every day. It totally drastically changed that because they depressurized it, right? You just pop the reservoir, you pop that bubble. They didn't know that was gonna happen. They thought, hey, it's oil, it's fluid, and it was kind of this policy, they made it, and then the Railroad Commission said, ah, that's, that's not good, right? We damaged the reservoir, let's change the rule. They changed the rule later, but after the reservoir was damaged, I mean, that's an example. Yeah, okay, so I think, look, I think regulators have an obligation primarily to be fair, dependable, and it needs to be scientifically backed, any sort of rules and regulations, right? In that case, that sounds like some clever lawyers that bastardized the rules and were like, yeah, man, I mean, I've read it. It looks good to me. Um, and so, yeah, do, do I think that the, that's the regulator's fault mm -hmm. for not having the foresight for somebody's clever interpretation? No. I think now we've got regulators that should be held liable for the groundwater contamination that they're ignoring. Um, but I also think that if you're doing your best, that there should be protections for everybody, right? Like if you're doing your best and you're honest, that's not where we look to penalties. I think it should be an intent. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't think that, just like I don't think, I think this is totally off topic and probably, this is, I don't have a campaign manager if you can't tell. You know, like police brutality, right? I don't think that police should have immunity if they you know, use unreasonable force. I think that they should be held accountable for the damage that they do. So I feel the same way with regulators, but at the same time, 
I don't think that in that like that hypothetical that you just gave mm -hmm. me that someone was really clever. No, I mean we're we're always coming up with new technology and we're like, "Hey, this is the rule. Somebody comes up, they get real clever with it. We go, that's not what we meant. We fix the rule and we move on." Okay. So negligence, if I can wrap that up, you're saying like if there's clear negligence on the regulatory body's part in this, then maybe there is a place that the regulatory is responsible for what's going on. Is that safe to say what you're Wrapping up there? Maybe more gross negligence if you okay. want to get into like technical legal. Okay. You know, intentional, willful, wanton, gross disregard for the truth and fairness, then yeah, they should be liable. Doing the best they can with the technology at the time and then adopting as things change, no, I don't think they should be liable. Okay. Tom, what would your response to that be? Okay, so I've got an interesting example, real world, real life example. Right down the street from here, Fort Stockton, Texas, just north of there, there's a field called the USM Queen Field, the last known operator of Stable Rock Energy. I used to work for them. I helped install that water flood right down the street. And we had to cut that water flood in half at the last minute. We unitized the whole thing, 3,600 plus acres. And the plan was to put an injection well pattern over the whole thing, an inverted pattern convert all, I got all these injection well permits, got all that done. By the way, I know all the regulations. My, my job depends on if I didn't, I get fired or run off, right? So um, going back to that water flood, right off that lease, from here to where my F-250 is parked out there, not my Lexus, my F-250, right from about that distance, there was an orphan well. And when I say orphan well, I just don't mean a, like wellhead orphan well. I mean a hole in the ground with no casing, no cement, nothing, pouring fluid out of it going underneath the road. All right, that's what you call a P13 well in Texas. This is an example of a really bad regulation that we have where a P13 well will never get plugged. And what ends up happening? It hurts operators like me who were trying to put in a water flood there and we weren't breaking any laws or doing anything wrong. And we had to pretty much abandon that project for fear of our queen oil coming out of the queen sand, coming out of that orphan well when we start pumping on this thing, right? You start filling up the swimming pool, and guess what? You start having stuff coming out all over the place. And if you got a orphan well over there, and it's, and it's just running water out of it, and it starts running your oil, and it hadn't run your oil before, and now it is, the value of your proposition goes not to zero, it goes to negative. It goes to negative, because then you're going to get sued. So does bad regulations have an impact on the industry oh most definitely are there things that need to change you better believe it and it's not we need to regulate the hell out of oil companies more a lot of it is we need to figure out handle how to handle the liability better and why is texas the only state that has these p13 wells every other state they send them to the commission the oil and gas commission and they put them on the list and they get plugged we got a ridiculous amount of liability in the state. We got to do something about it. But these P13 wells are a major problem. And who's liable for them? Are the landowners liable for them? All right, let's call up Pink Ken Paxton, and tell him to go sue all these people. Well, that ain't going to work. Most of these people are dirt poor. They don't have the money. They're farmers and ranchers. In fact, one of the guys I know that's got one is in the audience tonight, Mr. Schuyler White back there. You want to raise your hand? Oh, he's got his hand raised. That's him. I've been working with him to try to get his well plugged, and we've kind of figured it out for now, but we're going to have to do some more work on it, make sure it's plugged right. We're, we're doing the best job we can. But that's expensive for a cattle for, uh, rancher 
that doesn't have millions of dollars. Right. You know, so that's a problem. That's a that's a clear problem. Uh, is the state liable for that? Uh, you know, really, the the operator that drilled it. You know, they plugged it by the regulations at the time using Halliburton cement from the 30s or the 40s. Go take some of that cement. I worked in a cement lab. Go take cement that's that old, put it in water, and, and put it in salt water for that matter, and see what happens. Right. Okay. 20, Jamie, 30 years our libertarian ago. candidate, where do you weigh in on this? <laughs> this is much better. Um, so, P.S. Young, I'm going to generalize a lot here, but um, whenever we wonder why we have such bad regulation government, government officials. I think it boils down to Nassim Taleb's idea of skin in the game. Skin in the game means that an individual has upside and downside exposure. So skin in the game makes for a different type of cognition. Oftentimes our regulators don't have the skin in the game's actual Texans do. A policy change might just be, be that to a regulator, a policy change. Well, to a Texan, that might mean a spouse loses a job or the difference between having clean water or contaminated drinking water. To a regular, the downside is limited to being reelected, assuming they're even planning on seeking reelection. Assuming they don't, well, then they really have no downside. To be honest, the upside is pretty good for regulators. Since regulators can trade public equities, they stand to make a lot of money serving their portfolio rather than their constituents. The objective of outlining this is not to attack office holders. It's a highlight the asymmetry of risk between regulators and average Texans. One example of this is how state policy allows bad actors to transfer plugging and cleanup costs of their abandoned wells to the state. The Road Commission has designed a broken system where the state routinely takes on risks from the industry. Bad actors can also take advantage of this system by lobbying for favorable regulation. As a company acts, as long as a company acts within the proper regulatory framework, they can always take risks they might not otherwise take since they can always point the finger at the regulatory framework and claim their actions were compliant. This is how bad actors are able to offset the burden of responsibility to regulators who are granted a degree of sovereign immunity. <coughs> if the public could hold, could ho hold public, if the public could hold elected officials accountable for their actions, I feel we would stop getting politicians passing frivolous half-picked regulations. If elected officials had some skin in the game, they would be a lot more thoughtful about the broad implications of their decisions. It is a privilege, not an entitlement, to hold public office, and these representatives should be held to a higher standard than they currently are. This is actually a question that I submitted for the panel. Um, I don't really have an answer to it. I'm not sure if granting the individuals harmed by the regulation the ability to hold agency heads who propagate that regulation personally responsible in a suit for damages. However, I think it's something that's worth thinking about. Let me close by, by saying that in a perfect world, nobody should put others at risk without they themselves taking some risk as well. Thank you. Dwayne Tipton. What was the question I have? Yeah, absolutely. What harm is caused by, where harm is caused by regulation? Should the responsible official be subject to suit for damages caused to their victims? or should they have sovereign immunity from liability for their actions? So in an ideal world, you know, everybody would be accountable for everything they do, right? Uh, the reality of it, if we, if we operate that way, then the government would grind to a stop. So I believe that regulators should be held accountable if they're willfully negligent, they're grossly negligent. If they do something improper, they should be absolutely stripped of their immunity. 
other than act, as long as they're acting in good faith, trying to do the best, what they, what they think is the best, then I don't see that they should open themselves up to that liability. Only when there's some malfeasance. All right, short and sweet, I like it. I'll take a minute of that time. I just wanna say, you know, your answer suggests that maybe the system can somehow allow time, right? Because you're saying, hold on, was there gross negligence? And now we're saying, who's got the data? Who's got the information, right? Now we have all this time to figure out how do you actually solve this, right? The question I think is more directed at what is the solution today? Right, what, what can you do today? Nothing that can prolong. We can't have a three month discussion or a debate and all these, you know, you can't go into court for three months or six months or hold petitions and drag all that out. We need solutions today. Well, that's real easy. I've got that one in 20 seconds. You hire the right people to do the jobs. You vote for somebody that's gonna do the right thing for the right reasons, not fill in their pocket with cash, not putting a disposal, a waste disposal over here, then taking $155,000 money in, in donations. You hire people, they're gonna do right by, by you as Texans, it's gonna do right for the industry. Right on. Question number three. Unconventional drilling has been picking up in the Permian Basin. Wells are beginning to be drilled closer together, next to established fields and older wells. As a consequence, if an operator is not aware, an adjacent operator is about to frack a well. So they're about to frack, but he doesn't know. Damage to the well bore and loss of containment can occur from the frack hit. As of now, there is voluntary consortium in which operators post their frack schedules for their upcoming wells, but this is not always well maintained and occasionally a frack occurs without the adjacent operator being able to take mitigative measures, right? They don't know it's happening. What steps, if any, Jamie, question to you. What steps, if any, do you think should be taken concerning frack scheduling? Improved communication between operators is key to the success of the unconventional play. We know this is true. We have to work together to make this unconventional work. How can the regulatory body potentially contribute to this and help manage the communication? So at least from my understanding talking to people, I am new to the oil and gas industry, is that um, the Road Commission already makes permits public what it doesn't see on the permit is uh, the set frack date. And however, I, I do believe that this should be enough of a signal to operators to look out and uh, reach out to their neighbors. The government cannot and should not attempt to solve every problem, especially ones that are, have a solution simple enough to just you know, simply talk to your neighbor. Okay, Dwayne, same question. So uh, I've got a little bit different viewpoint than him. I've actually drilled out here I've been part of frack operations out here. I believe that the Railroad Commission should encourage communication at the district level. They should have a page on, on the site, you can go to your district, and then you're two weeks out from a frack, you, you list it and you put it. You've gotta order all the, all the equipment, why not have it out there and let your neighbor know? Because I'm sure if your neighbor's fracking, you don't want to lose containment because they fracked and you didn't know about it. So if I'm elected, I'm gonna go and talk to the operators, talk to the landowners, and try to build more of a cohesive unit. Be a partner with the operators. Say, hey, what can I do to help you? But what can I do to make your operations better? 
So that's, that's how I would undertake that. Sarah? Um, so I had no idea how to answer this, so I called some friends in the industry and were like, hey, you know, what would you guys like to see? And the majority was, we think we could do it similar to the way they do it offshore with a permitting process and handle it at the district level. You'd submit your information. You'd say, hey, this is the date. This is where I'm going to be. You'd have a radius. Anybody that's within that radius would get automatically notified, hey, on this date, this is happening at this location. If there's a conflict, you'd get automatic notice, and you can have technology and information that helps communicate it to you. OK. Tom. Yeah, uh, very similar to uh, Dwayne and Sarah. I, I think you should, you know, on the forum, you should definitely have the date on which you plan to do this. If it changes, you need to notify the district office and let them know, hey, we got a change. And whoever's affected by that should also get an immediate notification from the district office, and maybe even a phone call. But um, you're gonna, you need to, you need to be responsible as an operator. There's certain things that need to happen. And if you're going to go pump like that like crazy and, and start, your, your neighbors need to know about it. And uh, I hate uh, finding anyone for anything at all. Um, and I don't know if we've had any major problems from it where, it's, where we're doing damage and really causing major issues. But if it ever got to that and it got nasty, well, then I guess you could implement a fine. But I don't know if that's the right answer. I think you really need a good voluntary program, lots of communication. And you need to make sure it's clear on, uh, on your completion. Uh, when you're going to frack uh, and what your plan is and and have have listed you know all the operators around you that are offset that could possibly be affected have make sure you got the right contacts for them so when a notice does go that they are getting notified and nothing slips by but just make sure you got to notify the railroad commission when you do a lot of paperwork and, uh, and you got to notify uh, landowners when you go plug wells. There's a lot of notifications that happen in the permitting processes. I've done a bunch of them. This, this needs to be done for fracking, no doubt. And uh, if I was offset and somebody messed up my wells, I wouldn't be too happy. I don't think y'all would either. So we, we got to do our best to make sure we keep what we have, maintain the production that we have, and uh, don't mess anything up. So let's take the appropriate measures, and hopefully it doesn't get stupid where we got to start finding people for anything, but let's make sure everything's straight. Thank you, Tom. So with that, we're going to move into uh, a little bit more of a, a high, <laughs> highly anticipated question. So what is causing the seismicity and what alternatives do you plan on implementing to mitigate this issue moving forward? Tom, I'll go ahead and just start with you. All right. So earthquake time. Yay. Don't forget, you got three minutes. Maybe we'll get lucky and we'll have one right now. So, um, yeah, obviously, we, we got a lot of fluid coming in and out of the ground out here, a ridiculous amount, right? It's been going on for years, but now we got even more. We're trucking in fluid from New Mexico, and over there in East Texas, they're bringing in from Louisiana. Uh, there's a lot of this going on. But we're, we're running out of room uh, to, to put all this fluid, and where it's getting injected right now down deep, it's apparently causing issues. So we're going to need a whole lot more shallow injection wells, which you can't have the same pressures and volumes on. So everybody's like, hmm, you know, because then you have to drill more of them, and it's not as efficient. It's, it's, it's where we're at with it. You don't want damage to the community. I don't want to damage the community. If there's, if there's damage and, you know, financial damage being done, that's going to hurt the taxpayers. So it's a trade-off right now. We're not having any major damage to anything. 
So what should be done? We should, you know, scale back on the amount of fluid that we're putting into the ground maybe on some of these. We don't need to turn them all off. And the hell, they ran out and turned them all off. You know, I guess they were worried about losing an election maybe. I don't know. But um, they wanted the optics to look right. Uh, I, I think a better approach would be to scale down on the amount of fluids, measure what's going on, but also let operators know that there needs to be a, a new thought process on where you're putting your fluid here and maybe put operators on notice and say, hey, you know, one year, two years, three years, four years from now, we're not going to be able to do what we're doing right here according to all the seismic data we're having, that we got to start moving water around and pushing it out if we need to pump it around to do that, put the pipelines in, do what we need to do. But I don't want any center in, in Texas where we have a lot of people, concentrated population centers suffering because of stuff that we're doing in oil and gas or an oil field landfill that we have, um, you know, and crony capitalism plays into a lot of that. So we got to be careful. Uh, look, look at the money that people are taking and look at the money Wayne's taken and then you judge yourself. But, you know, when the decisions are being made up there and people are voting on things and there's conflict of interest, you can see on my handout there, I know you mentioned the $155,000 is actually on my printout of there on that table. I've, I've been bringing it up for months uh, talking about Wayne and I think there's conflicts a lot with Wayne. And I think that there is an opportunity for corruption to be there. And if y'all knew about the High Roller Club, and knew about the details, and I think some of the stuff will come out, but it's, it's not pretty. And that, a lot of that corruption needs to end. We need to be making right decisions when it comes to the earthquake situation. We don't need to be making knee-jerk reactions. We need to make smart decisions and really measuring what's going on here and figuring out what our long-term solutions are going to be. But I think moving water away from Midland, putting it in shallower places, drilling more injection wells, free market response is the way to go. Uh, we don't need to find people. We don't need to shut everything down. We've got to keep the oil industry strong. We've got to keep everything going here. Thank you, Tom. Dwayne, what is your response to the recent seismic activity and what, what your plans are in terms of mitigating that? Well, if I had been railroad commissioner, I would have been a whole lot more proactive. You know, about eight months ago when the seismic activity was really starting to ramp up, I would have, you know, requested that they, they reduce all of their injections by 30%. You know, start building a trend of see how the seismic activity works from there. And if it was still at the same level, then we would reduce it further until we found a stable level, a level you know, injection level to keep from moving forward. Tom hit a lot of good points. We do need more injection sites, but we also need uh, more recycle, water recycling capacity. So it's not just more places to put it. We've got to find other purposes for it. And if you guys vote for me and elect for me, elect me, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling. Uh, if you elect me, I'm gonna be the proactive thinker you need that takes problems on head on. Thank you, Sarah, do you have a response to this? Oh yeah, I mean, we should go back in time to 2014 when this was happening in Oklahoma and get our shit together and start preventing it here, but we didn't, so here we are. Um, you know, I think we've got to look to our geologists and our engineers and come up with some good solutions with a long-term big picture. Uh, 15 to 20 million barrels a day of water, what are we going to do with it? Maybe we could, I don't know, send it, we talked about this, right? Send it to Lake Mead. It's like, let's let's be a water capital. Like, water is the next oil. And Sell it to California, maybe. Yeah, Who there knows? you go. Um, but no, I mean, I think we've been so obsessed 
with how are we going to extract the hydrocarbons that the water has always been a second thought. And as the economics naturally change, I think that, again, we've got really smart technical people who can come up with better ideas. And, but yeah, in general, I don't think injecting it shallow into the San Andreas where we're already worried about four and five string casing designs is the way to go. Um, I think we need to figure out exactly what's causing it. Is it a depletion from the zones as well as a deep injection? Because some geologists say that. Is it just from the deep injection? Is it along fault lines? You know, I think, again, we've, we haven't taken a holistic big picture approach to actually figuring out where we think it's actually, what's, what's really, really happening, and having an honest conversation with everyone that's at the table to come up with a solution. It's too siloed, and everyone has their agenda. And so that's, I, I realize it's a non-answer, but I think, I don't know enough yet, and I'm hopeful that we get the right people in the room and we will come up with a solution because we are very smart and we figure our stuff out. Jamie? Thank you. So from my understanding, seismic activity has been caused largely by excessive injection of, of water. We're at a point at, that we need more uh, research and test trials done on this topic. However, restricting per permitted injection volumes in the area that are experiencing increased seismic activity seems like a pretty obvious starting point. We should not limit the water injection to zero, but maybe to something 25, 30, 30%. And also for the time being, the road commission should probably not issue any more permits in the immediate area. Taking a step back, the road commission should offer res more resources to local governments and landowners so that they can work more directly with operators to assess the risks of their activities, such as wastewater disposal in the same way Texans don't want the federal government telling them what they can and can't do, local communities don't want Texas state governments telling them what they can and can't do. We should let local matters be local matters. I believe the Road Commission should do a better job empowering indiv individuals and local communities. Thank you. Cold weather extremes have negatively impacted Texans, particularly last year. Everybody was aware of 2021 and what we endured. Winterization of assets is a concern of many individuals and should be a focus of companies to prevent the loss of resource and destruction of assets and the environment. How would you protect against future extreme weather events on the upstream, midstream, and downstream sectors? Jamie, why don't you jump in? Great, thank you. So I think it's important that we recognize, uh, first off with Winter Storm Uri, that the all-time record for electricity demand that in ERCOT, in the ERCOT region had been 75 gigawatts. In the extreme weather scenario, ERCOT had previously projected 67 gigawatts. However, the electricity demand during winter storm year reached 76.8 gigawatts. It's nearly 10 gigawatts more than what ERCOT had projected. This means that even if everything would have run perfectly, we would still had blackouts. We need to recognize that hurricane, or hurricane, I'm from South Texas, so I'm used to saying hurricane. Uh, Winter Storm Uri was a freak event. We weather events such as these becoming the new norm, that's a completely different conversation. On my way to Midland, I was driving to the Houston airport. I was rushing and I was listening to a podcast by Lex Friedman and he was interviewing Ray Dalio. Uh, he said two quotes that I really liked and I, and I figured that 
uh, I'll, I'll just include them in this. The first one was that pain plus reflection equals progress. I believe Texans were deeply affected by the effects of the blackouts. I don't think anyone would argue that we experienced a lot of pain. Now I think it's important to reflect. The second quote that I really liked was this one. Every time you confront something painful, you come to a junction in your life. You have the opportunity to face the healthy but painful truth or the unhealthy but comfortable delusion. Partisanship has found its way into the discussion regarding Winter Storm Uri. It's sad that the government officials keep bringing up wind power when they talk about the storm. Wind doesn't provi provide Texans with their baseloaded electricity. Natural gas does. The left should not be dismissive of the right, and the right should not be dismissive of the left, since this just leads to tribalism. The people need action from the elected officials, not partisanship. The reality is that companies who had to shut down last year due, due, due to loss of power during the storm lost a lot of money. The loss of profits is incentive for companies to properly winterize. It's not in the best interest of companies to lose money. Since companies have a strong incentive to act in their own best interest, which in a free market will align to the best interest of their consumers, because if not, the consumers will just find new providers, the incentive is already in place for companies to properly winterize. Right now, I do not believe the Railroad Commission needs to take any action on this issue. However, I think the Commission should always be opening and listening and considering new ideas. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Dwayne? Can you read the question again? I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Cold weather extremes have negatively impacted Texans, particularly this past year. Winterization of assets is a concern of many individuals and should be a focus of companies to prevent the loss of resources and destruction of assets and the environment. How would you protect against future extreme weather events on the upstream, midstream, and downstream sectors? So, I mean, I've, pre I've campaigned on this pretty heavily. You know, uh, there's lots of problems that need to be issued with winteriz winterization and weatherization. We need to encourage the critical natural gas infrastructure to be winterized and weatherized. If I'm elected, the next time that we have forecasted temps below 25, I'll have created a task force to go out there and ensure that those sites are ready for the winter storm, that we don't have a 25% loss in our natural gas resources like we did, what was it, six weeks ago when the, the cold snap? That tells me that we're not ready. You know, I don't want to add a whole bunch of cost onto operators, but it comes down to what's best for Texans and that whether it's Texans businesses or Texans the people, you know, if your assets freeze up, you're not making money from them. So, I mean, basically I would just put I would not give exemptions for critical natural gas infrastructure. I would encourage operators all levels, midstream, downstream, upstream, to ensure that their assets are winterized and weatherized. Oops. Thank you. You gotta prepare for summer and winter, right? So the operator has to winterize and then de-winterize, right? That's a whole new logistic like operation. <laughs> I don't know what de-winterizing. I don't. So if you winterize, I don't know if we're de-winterizing. Okay, so if you spend the time and attention and the, and what it takes to actually keep things from freezing out on a facility, right? You're wrapping everything. You're keeping it from getting too cold. The cheapest, the most effective way possible. What happens when it's 110 degrees six months later or whatever? Right? The summer comes and now everything is even hotter. 
You know, you got to think about both. It's not the, the fear of the winter storm. It's, it's the, you know, what the solution here is, I think. If you I, just add methanol, you don't have to worry about wrapping it. If you do what? If you just add methanol, you don't have to wrap it. But you add can't methanol. have holes in your pipe or the methanol won't stay. Sarah, why don't you chime in here? I'll see you yeah. making some faces. Let's, let's hear your opinions here. Yeah. Well, I think, again, you got to figure out who has jurisdiction over what, right? And the Railroad Commission has jurisdiction over intrastate pipelines. Um, and first of all, you need mechanical integrity for your pipelines. So we actually have to have, you know, pipelines without holes in them first. So that's like, you know, kind of a basic that get to. Um, but then I think we need to think big picture what the huge failure was, in my view, from talking to industry folks is the critical load and if you shut down your saltwater disposal then there's nowhere for the water to go so you can't produce your gas so that needs to be critical got to go to the compressor stations you got to like you, and there needs to be a priority based right risk analysis of here's our critical here's our most here's where the most gas comes here's where these power plants get their gas from let's trace it back and let's prioritize not a big deal um, and then i think where they don't have jurisdiction is the incentives right now for natural gas producers is all supply and demand based. They have an incentive for there to be a shortage so that prices spike. So maybe we should instead incentivize reliability, maybe we should penalize the wind and solar. If they commit to providing so much megawatt hours and then they're not able to, guess what? Ding, ding, you're paying for the natural gas and you're paying for it at double because someone else now has to pick up the slack that you promised to give. So I don't have jurisdiction over that. I mean, I've got all kinds of ideas for stuff that I don't have jurisdiction over, but it's gonna take somebody that gets in there that has the ideas, that goes and talks to ERCOT, that talks to the, the Power Commission, I'm blanking on their name, right? But it's all these different agencies that have to work together, and then the industry needs to come in and say, this is what we can do, this is what we're prepared to do, and instead of having Texoga go in, I publicly quit Texoga when they went and said, we're against winterization. I'm like, get your heads out of your asses, guys. People died. We cannot be okay with that. So that's what we need. We need us in the industry to step up, to go to our lobbyists and say, that's a stupid position. Don't go and take that in the public. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to come up with the answer. We're not going to wait for the regulators to tell us how to do it because they're not going to tell us how to do it the right way. Only we as an industry can tell them how we should do it. So my, oh, so my understanding is prioritizing Correct? Is this where you're going with this? Your yeah. solution? Yeah, I mean, you got to where is the natural gas that we need to produce the power coming from? Let's make sure that that infrastructure is protected. And the next time we think that there's going to be excess load, you're prepared to pull the switches and say, here's where we're going to pull, right? Like, and if you're in a rural community, we need to make sure that there is a safe, warm place. And if you're going to say, hey, you're in the boonies, you can go to Ward County High School and we'll have a warm place and no, we'll, we'll make sure that there's power. And sorry, but yeah, we're going to keep the target compressor stations up and make sure that we can get the natural gas to the power plant. Thank you. All right, Tom, where do you weigh in here? All What's right. your solution? Yeah, so I think actually the Railroad Commission, um, they've done a good job hiring this guy named Ted Wooten, who's the director of critical infrastructure. Ted's actually a very smart individual. We need more people like Ted at the Railroad Commission. The problem is, is that are they actually listening to Mr. Wooten? That's the big question. And when he makes recommendations in meetings, is he blown off or do they really listen to him? So I, I have a lot of questions about what's going on there. 
as, as far as the advice it's given and is it taken uh, by the commissioners seriously. And so uh, I would like to see if I'm there as commissioner for us to bring these professionals in that are smart, that are qualified, and listen closely when we're going over what exactly is criti cri critical infrastructure and what's not, where all these critical points are, and then actually do auditing on more than just uh, a semi-annual basis, perhaps even a quarterly basis of the gas flow and make sure, hey, we're taking measurements all the time. If we do have gauges in there to measure what the gas is doing um, in these critical points, then we can keep closer tabs on it. Maybe we have um, not official, but some kind of data dump to where we've got data flowing, just like ERCOT reports uh, energy uses. Maybe we can report on these critical infrastructure points and see what's going on on them in real time. Perhaps that would be a good idea. But we have to keep our eyes on the gas because gas is the base load power. It used to be coal. The EPA and the Obama administration, they're going to do everything they can to take away all of our base load power. We're going to be forced to use natural gas. We're getting maybe one nuclear reactor in Texas, one new one here anytime soon. We're going to need these small nuclear reactors, really. And look, my motto is make all we can and sell the rest. So um, we've got plenty of markets for our oil and gas. We need more energy, period, right? But one thing that we can do immediately, it's a free market answer to this that hasn't been done, that I've been jumping up and down about now for over a year, is repealing the flared gas tax. Doing that will allow a lot more of this flare gas to be used to create electricity, which you can do whatever you want to with it, make widgets, mine Bitcoin, whatever. But if, you're, uh, if your operation as an operator is weatherized to your liking to make sure that's going on, well, when electricity spot prices are high enough, if you've got a license from ERCOT, you can sell it on the grid. You're making money instead of making widgets. Now you're making money selling electricity. It'd be great if we had a streamlined permit process in place to where people could get these permits and get an ERCOT permit and, and be able to do all this easily. And we could actually facilitate all this flare gas doing something with it instead of sitting on our butt and wondering what's going on. You know, so uh, repealing the flare gas tax is not a crazy idea. Wyoming did it two years ago. Well, why are we once again following and not leading? You know, this is the problem with Austin. We got a bunch of followers in Austin. We don't have any leaders. Put me there and I will be a leader in stuff that doesn't really affect, the Railroad Commission doesn't have jurisdiction over, but things that we need to lead on, like mandatory wind bonding for wind farms and repealing the flare gas tax. Send me there, you're gonna see changes. Okay, well, that was the end of the canned questions. No more notes, Jamie. <laughs> Sorry, this one's Jamie now. Jamie came the most prepared. Right, and I appreciate that. I do. I, I was I making light of it. <laughs> uh, now, what we're going to do is shuffle through the questions from the audience. Right, we're going to kind of go down the line and uh, and discuss this. I, I see one initially that that I would like to to touch on. Okay. And this is, you want me to just throw it out? Okay. How do you plan to deal with the amount of abandoned wells that remain unplugged? And another question that I saw further down the line that somebody had asked is, exactly how many unplugged wells are there right now? And do we know what that number is? Who wants to start? Ooh, I, mean, I want to start. Dive me, in. Me, Tom, me, you want to go? Go. Yes, thank you. This is the one subject I know a lot about because I plug wells for a living in Texas and offshore in the Gulf of Mexico. We have over 6,000 orphan wells on the list in Austin. 
we have a lot more than that because we got all these P13 wells, and then we got wells that we don't even know exist. How do I know that? Because I plugged them. I plugged wells that were drilled in the early 1900s, and I turned the stuff in the railroad commission. They go, oh, there's not a well. I said, oh, yeah, there's a well here. We're trying to drill another well, and this one's in the way. we got to move the rig in. Oh, well, uh, uh. the records are terrible, absolutely terrible. And all that stuff on microfish to the basement, it needs to be online. I shouldn't have to drive halfway across Texas to go pull well file. We don't need an army of people in the records department. We need a couple of people that put everything online and maintain it, and that's it. That there's, there's the bureaucracy in Austin that we have and the inefficiency and incapability to get things done is terrible. Orphan Wells is a great example. That, li that bonding liability, if you go bankrupt, needs to be tied to the well board. Because you know what happens right now? It goes to Austin, and all those greedy SOBs in Austin stick their fingers in it, and they never go to the Railroad Commission. They all got to beg and plead for more orphan well money every year. Here's an interesting question on top of that, because of your experience with that. You talked about you know being involved heavily in abandoning wells and the yes. orphan wells. What is the true number of orphan wells? In Texas, orphan wells, we don't not know. abandoned. We, 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 we don't know that. And it's going to be a while before we figure that out because there's not anybody actually going out there to do that uh, research. And I feel like at some point we're going to have to really jump in there and figure that question out uh, and, and figure out for sure. And give maybe give every operator in Texas five or six years. That's a, a six-year term for a railroad commissioner. That's a long time. How about we give everybody six years Go over your whole lease and find every well bore on your entire lease and turn it into the Railroad Commission, whether it's yours or not, and let's just do a whole catalog and figure out what we've really got. That way, when Carbon Tracker tries to point the finger at us and tell us how much our liability is, we can tell them, well, actually, we know exactly how many wells we have, and we've lowered the price of plugging because we've got these new methods that Tom Slocum showed us how to do, and we got all the corruption out of here, and now we're saving money. All right, there's a lot of good new ways to do stuff. We got to start adopting this. We got to save money. These bureaucrats, these people that run the Railroad Commission, they don't have any experience doing this. This is my expertise. I will make it my mission to eliminate orphan wells in Texas because we're paying for that. The taxpayers are. These things mechanically degrade. It gets worse and worse. I'll go ahead and wrap it up. But hey, I can go talk hours on this. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, go for it. Uh, 100,000 plus? A hundred thousand plus orphan yeah, wells we, in the state of Texas. Are we talking about test, test, you know, test bores that aren't reported? I mean, I know of orphaned. I, I know, but yeah. let's. What is an orphaned well? An they orphaned, don't have an operator that I, I, claims them. I'm sorry. You know, you know better than I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> My definition is it's a hole in the ground that an oil and gas operator put, and we currently don't have anyone on the hook for it. Right. And we have. I mean, we just saw in Crane County a 150 foot geyser on a well that we found as a private landowner that the Railroad Commission told us that they didn't have a record on. And then they're like, oh no, it's not really the test 112. It's this other one that we've just made up. And then we start digging into the records more and it looks like they got down to about 140 feet. They had parted casing. They scooted the rig over 10 feet and started drilling again and reported it as the same well bore to the Railroad Commission. So, uh, and next to it is six core test wells that are not reported, but we know because of the records. And I there's, I think there's probably 6,000 in, you know, like within a few miles, if we're being intellectually honest of what our real exposure is. Um, and I had a friend the other day that called me and he goes, have you looked at the delinquent P5s on the Railroad Commission website? And I said, no, not lately. And he goes, there's 10,000. And if we are actually intellectually honest, 
the Railroad Commission budgets between, I think, nine and $20,000 to plug a well. Well, guess what? Dump bailing cement, throwing some 10-pound mud on top of it, and calling it a day. You can't set four plugs. You can't go in, rig up, put your BOP on, pressure test it, pump the cement, wait 12 hours, tag it, come back up. I can do math. Four plugs, 24 hours, how, you're, not, you're not doing anything to standard, and they're not testing it. So we've got hmm. all these wells that the, the okay, it, the Railroad Commission's budget is $100 million a year, roughly. They spend half of that plugging wells. If any of us, if we were just like, hey, your job is to supervise people and make sure that they do this, and that's the Railroad Commission's job, to make sure that operators actually operate their wells and then plug them when they're done. And when you do a really bad job at that, instead of firing you, we're now gonna give you the money to do it directly because you didn't properly supervise the people that were supposed to do it. This is ridiculous. And so now, hmm. I, you know, I respect what Commission Shift is doing, but their report says that they recommend that money go, and we're about to get a ton of federal money, that that go to the Commission. Hell, no, it doesn't need to go to the Commission. We need experts to, and we need to look at who's getting AFEs and why are companies that are shit companies getting eight, $20 million a year from the Railroad Commission. I'm sure if you follow those donations, there's some answers. But again, intellectual honesty, and there needs to be a hmm. safe place where operators can come. Louisiana just passed new legislation where you can adopt a well. And the, initially, the production money goes into a trust to take care of decommissioning, and then you get severance tax relief for the next few years. So you actually incentivize operators to go and find these wells, adopt them, Let's give them immunity from liability. Let's actually go back like they do offshore. And if you're a major operator, instead of dumping your shit assets on a local guy in exchange for his deep rights, oh, let, like, let's maybe actually make the guy that benefited from it come back and plug it. And sorry, PE companies, when your fund's up in 10 years, you think they're gonna have any money to come back? Nope. All of us, we're gonna be living here drinking this water and everyone else is like, Mm, sorry. So no, I mean, we again, we have a massive problem, and I calculate it's $2.3 billion at $25,000 I mean, 25, a well, which isn't sufficient. So probably 4 or $5 billion, if we're being intellectually honest. Wow. Jamie, where do you weigh in on this, and, and where do you feel like your, your expertise and your background, where you lack where others have the oil and gas background, where do you feel like your background can help bring solutions? So let me start off by saying it feels great to be freed from my notes. I figure that if I did them, I might as well use them, right? But so at least in terms of governance, I, I guess there's two theories, right? One's a command and control, and the other one is rest, restitution and retribution. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a difficult issue, right? Um, it's, it's not easy to find who made these wells and, and who to find liable. I feel the, the best way to probably handle it would have to be giving them a grace period of one, of one year to claim the wells, right? And at which point the Road Commission should maybe hire some kind of investigative force to, to try to see who, who left these wells. And I mean, if they can't find them to just uh, uh, do some kind of like very impunitive uh, fines, right? So that, that's kind of like the libertarian stance for keeping the environment clean, right? That the, that the cost uh, for environmental remediation is so high that it's not economically viable to pollute the environment. Hmm. Complex, Duane. The, the question goes to you and kind of how that developed. Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, I really don't care to retread everything that we went over, so I'm just going to hit the highlights. You know, uh, my fiance says I'm a man of few words. I don't really believe her, but you know, I'm hoping she knows the best. Uh, so the things I would start with would be the data collection. 
you know, we've got to understand what we have out there. We've got to understand what resources and what liabilities are out there. So I would start bringing the stuff that's in microfilm, bring it to digital. I would, you know, I'd put forth the, district, the older district employees, having them go out there and locate wells that they know about that aren't necessarily logged. Uh, so I'm gonna hit the things that's different because I liked a lot of the points they hit. The things, one of the things I'm gonna do, if I'm elected is I'm gonna use, the next time we have a downturn in the oil and gas industry, as a time to ramp up the plugging and abandoning of wells. I'm gonna put out of work oil and gas workers back to work with federal money. If we've already gotta spend our tax dollars, I'm gonna use it as an avenue to put Texans back to work. Also, I would also really explore you know, they have some really nice uh, epoxy-based plugging, uh, plugging programs that uh, last longer. From what I'm reading, they last longer, they're more stable. So, I mean, I'd really like to try a different way than cement and then having to come back in 30, 40 years and rehash the thing. I want to look and see what, what kind of, what kind of uh, numbers we get out of these epoxy-based programs, and that would be my way to solve it for good. I think that's a great answer. I'm sorry, I just, just they, they covered so much of it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I think you, I mean, you know, when we look at the last downturn, you know, as a, an oil and gas construction company, we were looking at, at any opportunity, whether it was P&A programs or mowing right-of-ways. Um, so I, I really liked that, thank you. I talked about a couple of things that I wanna segue into this next question, and it, it, it has a lot in it. So we'll just kinda open this up and, and discuss, but, um, you know, you, you all mentioned the amount of work clearly involved in understanding the orphan well problem. Uh, and that's one thing the oil and gas history shows more than anything is the fact that the jobs are here. You got plenty of opportunity, you know, and that's an amazing thing for a society. That's an amazing thing for a community. You have a place to go to make a living and it's, you go to work and that's, that's fantastic. That's the oil and gas industry at its whole. But this question says, you know, how is the Railroad Commission going to handle the increased drilling activity of the Permian Basin from currently 20% of all oil, based on this information that they're coming from, going to increase by 2040 to 60%? Like, if that's a true goal for the Permian Basin, and we're all sitting in this room looking at each other and talking about earthquake seismicity and earthen well problems, but you got, you, so you got goal lines moving, right? You got the front goal line saying, let's do it. Let's, let's increase production. And then you got a goal line that has to make an adjustment and something's got to fall. The orphan wells, the seismicity, you know, how do you balance that as a commissioner for the railroad commission if you're elected? Dwayne, oh, yeah, that oh. one's, to, yeah. <laughs> that one's Dwayne, that one's Dwayne. So look, if you, to me, the railroad commission really has two mandates to be a steward of the environment and advocate of job creation. You know, if we're gonna ramp up operations that much, we need to get a, we, the Railroad Commission, needs to get a whole lot better at what they're doing. They need to have trend-based data, data analytics, you know. They need their inspection regulation arm dragging to the 21st century where we're getting more inspections done that are more fruitful, that they are delivering on the trends that they're seeing and making corrections. So we've gotta do more with less You've, got a, you've really got a key on what's important. If you're having problems with pipelines, then you have the inspectors and you, 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 you point the laser at the problem that you're seeing and you follow up on the data until you resolve the problem. 
Right now, that's not really how the inspection arm of the, the Railroad Commission works. Hmm. So you've got, to, you've got to have a focus on what you're looking at and what you're wanting. It can be done with you ramping up that much production, but it's got, it's got to be a targeted approach. You've got to have qualified inspectors out there. You, need, you don't need bureaucrats. You need industry people that can knock stuff out. You've got to work with the operators so that the operators understand that, hey, we do regulate you, but we want to make sure that you're doing things right. And if you do things right, it's going to be better for you. So you got to get the industry to buy in as well. Jamie, I think the industry is safe to say that we're bought in. You know, we need to increase production. The industry's bought in on that. But you got a lot of things to think about, you know, as potential candidate and, and the commissioner. You know, how do you address this question? How do you address this kind of growth in production with the, you know. And I think a good revenue? question to tack on to that is, is what is the plan in terms of expediting drilling permits? So, I mean, to be honest, like, I, I don't think my role is to tell you how the industry is going to change, right? I feel like that's the free market's job. Um, the free market has great solutions, for example, like Bitcoin mining for handling flare, flare gas, right? It's, uh, it's a way to make some money out of, you know, previously uh, uh, gas that, you know, didn't have any usage because it had no pipeline that was connected to, to facility to process. And, um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of the permits, I, I think that it's, I've never worked the Royal Commission. I've worked with my local government, City of Brownsville, and I can tell you that City of Brownsville is very inefficient, and they need more more technology in their day-to-day -day operations. Um, I feel like that that right there is uh, just just technology would expedite the process of permitting greatly. Thank you, Sarah. I haven't heard anybody complaining about permits lately. Is that an issue? It has been. I an mean, issue. as long as you buy Tom Craddock's mud, it's not an issue, right? <laughs> Oh, too, too real? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I don't know. Would you like to elaborate a little bit more? Because <laughs> now, now well, you've got me interested. I'm curious. <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, growth, right? Production growth. Like, that is a good thing. It's needed. The demand is real. The idea that the oil and gas industry is going to go for another 50 years strong is probably real. Yeah, but I mean, look, what... What was our what was our estimated reserve ten years ago, and what is right. it now? I mean, look, we have plenty. Let's stop obsessing about that, and we get better and better. I mean, every year I go to new, and they're like, "Look at our drill curves, and look at our like we're like I said, we are really good at getting it out of the ground. I have no doubt that we will continue to be really good at getting it out of the ground. My recommendation is that we get a little bit better at planning and figuring out how we're going to get it out of the ground and then once we create these holes that are permanent how we're going to deal with them going forward and so i think um i think we're going to I, I think we're going to continue to do it i don't i don't foresee any issue in meeting demand if we're allowed to continue right like the market i agree the market rel relatively takes care of it what it doesn't take care of is the water the flare gas like all these other tangential issues and like, I'm sorry, but the oil and gas industry is about as afraid of the Railroad Commission as we are of a meter maid. It's a minor inconvenience. Um, so if I'm in there, I will hold bad guys accountable and let the good guys who have the innovation have an actual fair playing field so that the right innovation and the right technology, and it's not just, oh, let's pump 14.8 class C neat because that's the only thing that we at the commission understand. Tom. Tom. 
said that at the same time. Yes, Sarah actually brings up some good points. Uh, and you sound surprised. Well, no, not at all. Um, there, there's some good stuff in there, but uh, it, we we need to have people with real industry experience at the railroad commission and as railroad commissioners, not just as bureaucrats. They're working there. We need both. And when, when you have people that really uh, are vested in this, it, it, it changes. And I'm not talking about own stocks and bonds and mineral interest over here in this field over there and that field over there. Uh, but their, their entire life centers around it. And they want this to be there for the next 100, 200, 300 years like I do. Uh, I'm a firm believer the oil and gas industry is going to be here for until the cows come home. All right? Um, this isn't something that's going away anytime soon, and we are going to drill a lot more wells. I haven't seen any backlogs on the Railroad Commission list when it comes to drilling permits. I'm a frequent visitor to that site. Hmm. I file lots of permits. What about expediting, right? Like all of a sudden it's You can it's pay an expedite fee if, if, you want, if you want to expedite. You can pay some extra money to have your permit expedited. I think it's $150 or something if you yeah. want to expedite permit fee. Cough up the change, and they'll expedite it for you. I think that's a really great answer to the. Well, they the do it already. The audience, they they already do that it. one four and times. Yeah, if you everybody's anybody, raise your hand if you filed a drilling permit before. Anybody in here filed a drilling permit? Here's a couple. I see you know about the expedite fee. You know hands. about all that. It's a real deal. Have you have you had any problems getting drilling permits? Nope, me either. All right, I think the all elephant right. in the room for the question to me is. If we're going to grow and we're going to put more and more well bores in the ground like we plan to do, how are we or how is the Railroad Commission going to help operators handle the massive amount of new productive fluid, right? You have injection wells, you have to drill more of those. And those are hot topics right now. You can't shallow injection. That's a hot topic. So the growth is not about can it be done. We know we can get it done. We've done it. And we know that we have those jobs there, but how do you handle the, the real growth there? You know, yeah. that's a lot of fluid. Yeah, uh, really, uh, te modern technology is the only way we're going to handle it but with uh, introducing that and having, uh, once again, not bureaucrats that are uneducated at the Railroad Commission. We need much smarter people, and we need a much smarter process. We need a lot more real-time data. We need, we need to know exactly what's going on. Our permits, our data has to actually be accurate. If what we have at the Railroad Commission isn't accurate, going back to the well files, and it's been that way and it's not changing, that's a problem. The, you know, And we have to go back and see about the stuff that was previously done and how accurate is that, because that actually affects what we're doing right now. Uh, we can make bad decisions right now based off of crappy records from 40 or 50 years ago. That's not good. So all this stuff was weaved together, and we need to sort it all out and get organized. Um, I think, it, like, if you ask me what the record situation at the Railroad Commission, it's like a, a frat house that hasn't been cleaned in 10 years. All right? I mean, it's just every, every time I file a plug-in permit, 50% of the time that I have to correct them, and I have a week delay in getting my permit, which really shouldn't happen or two, because they don't have the right APA number, API number, et cetera. So there's issues there that if we have people that actually do this, like permit crap, like me for a living, there as a railroad commissioner, I can immediately point out and say, okay, this is going to have to be changed. That's going to be have to change. 
we can handle the more volume. That's not going to be a problem. You can always hire more bureaucrats, but what would you rather do? Streamline the process, save taxpayers money, or hire an army of bureaucrats? Me, myself, I'd rather not hire the army of bureaucrats. I'd rather not have all those pensions and all that. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. I think we need to give the taxpayers the most bang for their buck going forward. If we're going to put millions of holes in the ground, let's do it. Let's do it smart. Let's be smart about it. Smart regulations, not dumb ones. Okay. Moving on. So you mentioned the elephant in the room, and I'm going to move on to the other one. Um, Miss Sarah. So a question that has been asked is, as a candidate, do you feel that the video of the pump jack we're going there yes. we're, we're gonna yeah, and here's the here's my you know we said do we go there and i am yeah, a female in the industry and uh you know a, an advocate for females understanding that this industry is not a male-dominated industry and does not have to be a male-dominated industry and and do you feel that the perception of this video the i think the phrasing here is the forced perception on the rest of the women who go into the work field Regardless, I would like to hear your side of the video and, and you know, an opportunity to clear your name, if you will. Ooh, clear my name. I mean, has everybody seen it? Should we, should we, we put don't it on have a to screen? Show it. We don't have to show it. I don't think that's like TVs and stuff. Look, um, I got up on a pump jack in pasties in my underwear and I put it on TikTok. Uh, why did I do it? Um, I did it because no one gives a shit. I've been screaming about radium 226 and 228 in our groundwater. I've been screaming about all the issues we've been talking about. And unfortunately, in society today, we're more concerned about who's sleeping with whom and you know, like all this ridiculousness. And I was like, if we could just pay attention to the issues. And I've been trying for years to get people to pay attention to the issues. And I'm not accepting any campaign donations. And Wayne gets out there and he brags that he needs to accept all this money because it's so expensive to run a campaign. And uh, I had some women that reached out to me that were very angry and they said, you know, you've set us back. And I said, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. Um, I think what I've done is I've called BS on what everyone realizes. I mean, I'm dressed like this, I go into court, I pound my fist, people are gonna watch my boobs jiggle. Like, they're not listening to what I'm saying. Like, they're watching my boobs anyways. So when you just like put them out there and it's like, okay, we've all seen them now, can we stop obsessing about it and get to the issues? And I had the San Antonio newspaper who withdrew their endorsement uh, without giving me the chance to discuss it. And I've now had four or five television interviews and we're getting more press coverage about the actual issues. And so it was a, I, it was very well planned out. I filmed it in November as part of the documentary that we're doing and I didn't know how I wanted to use it. But when I saw it, I was like, this is fun. Like if, you've, if you're in West Texas and you've never been on a pump jack that has been properly decommissioned, that is not hooked up to power, that we know is not gonna start, that we know is not leaking H2S, I, I, like, I had a harness, I didn't have a harness on, but you know what I mean, like, if, if one more jackass tells me, like, where's your, where's your hard hat, I'm like, I live on this ranch. If it's not safe for me to ride, a you know, like, walk around the ranch without a hard hat, we've got a problem. And so instead of we, we pick on women, and meanwhile Putin's out there, you know, like, with his bare chest talking about like just get over it and and so you know yeah i did it did it work 
Mm-hmm. Guess how many people now know what the Railroad Commission does that didn't know two days ago? So, you know, it's sad that that's the state of affairs in our lives, and it's sad that people are so offended by the female form. Uh, you know, it is what it is, and I think that now that we've all seen it, can we be like, wow, it really wasn't that big of a deal. We all have nipples. So that's my take on it. Okay. <laughs> Segway there is, you know, it's difficult to get the attention, right? It's difficult to get information out that you believe in. And it sounds like, you know, you, you chose an option that allowed you to get attention and you have a message behind that attention. You know, you can say a lot about other people driving attention and there's no message. Yeah, right. Like, uh, it wasn't, I don't need, I'm, ne I'm not going to be posting any more naked videos on a pump jack, right? <laughs> like, I've got my point. Like, let's talk about mechanical integrity. Let's talk about, right? Like, yeah. So you have our attention. Uh, okay, so we have more questions that we're talking about here. Let's go with, what do you think, Kelly? Da, 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 da. I mean, are we not going to talk about Tom's gold AK? <laughs> I wasn't aware of Tom's gold AK. A no. Yeah, not, gold. not mine, a friend of mine's. I guess it's, I'm, I'm famous over uh, AK-47. Okay, whatever. Right, well, but that's okay. No one's mad about that, right? Oh, why would you be mad about it? Well, are you well, mad? We, are you going to take my gold AK from me like Beto? What's going on here? No, I think we this actually conversation does, about this? does make a good takeaway going back to, to the safety of, I, I think it might actually be illegal to ride a pump jack. I might not be sure. But anyways, the safety of getting up there without a harness. So elected, if you are elected to the commission, the railroad, what steps will you take to enforce or promote as a commissioner to ensure that our, our hardworking field hands and men and women are going home safely to their families? So... Oh, what kind of different safety practices need to be enforced that aren't already? Dwayne. Oh, wonderful. Hey, so, I mean, I, I talked about it briefly earlier. I started out as a roughneck. I worked my way up. I know what goes on in the regs. I know how safety is operated. And if I'm elected railroad commissioner, I'm going to really put the onus on the operator to not let safety slide because you're in a hurry. Too many times I've been out on location, uh, all right, I'm gonna, I usually don't go into deep stories, but I'm going to tell you a story right now. I was working for, I'm not going to, all right, so the story goes like this. I was working, I, I almost said the operator's name, and I'm not going to do that. And uh, I was working with this young kid, he was about 20 years old at the time. He was up in the top of the derrick, and he was tightening rollers because on this top drive, it was connected to it. We didn't have the uh, joystick locked out and tagged out, but it wasn't supposed to be any movement. The company man came out and he started yelling at the, uh, the assistant driller, which is running the rig, and so he clutched it. They didn't follow the proper lock, lockout and tagout uh, procedure, so my friend lost his leg. I had to climb up there and, and clamp his arterial, his femoral artery, and then bring him back down. He's 20 years old, he lost his leg. If I'm elected to the railroad commissioner, I'm going to make sure the operators know that you're never in too big of a hurry for safety, that if you do the right things, your hands are safer, you save more money, you cut down on your insurance, be the example that you want to see in safety, and put that out to those operators. Yeah, I'd like to speak real fast on that. Um, I know two people that have been killed in the oil industry, one of them offshore, one of them on land. 
the guy that was killed on land, uh, he was hauling a, a fluid truck, and he got pulled over by DPS for something, cop left, and uh, next thing you know, he was on top of the tank, and he was trying to, he was messing with the hatch, and they found him inside the tank, he fell in, he passed out from the gas, hit, hit his head on one of the structural members inside the tank and died. Another guy, uh, he walked backwards into an open hole offshore and fell into an open hole in a well that was being decommissioned. And uh, both of those stories are extremely tragic. And I was definitely touched by those events in my life and I will never forget them. And I, I take safety extremely serious when it comes to oil and gas. It doesn't take uh, many wrong moves out there and you can get somebody killed or get yourself killed. And when you have an increase in activity, you're going to have an increase in injuries. You're, you're going to have recordable incidents, right? And that's really scary what we're about to see here with prices going up and activity going up. And uh, if I'm there, I will, I will do everything we can to make sure we don't lose any good oil-filled hands. We've already lost too many. And uh, a lot of these injuries and accidents aren't even from being on location. More people, I'm pretty sure, get killed going to location and coming to location than anything out on these roads. And unfortunately, we lost Mr. Summers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's somebody else from the family that we, we didn't need gone. We needed him here on stage tonight to talk about the reason why he was running against Wayne Christian. Really, that's important. we got to keep these hands alive because it's what... These hands are what keep the oil field going. It's not people in suits, career politicians in Austin. It's us. Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, my, my thinking on it is I'm so tired of the rhetoric of, like, safety first, and everyone has stop work authority, and then at the end of the day, they give it to the lowest bidder. Like, I'm sorry, we need operators to step up and say, We're, we are going to require that you actually are safe. And then I need my service company guys to be like, no, I'm not going to do stupid stuff. I don't care. I'm going to reject this job. And if everyone starts turning down bad work, right? Like a guy called the other day and Hawk, who's been driving me around, is a well control guy. And he's, he asked me, he's, he, so I don't even know who called me. It was weird. But he's like, I, I, I'm dealing with this. And Hawk's like, well, you know, back in the day, we'd cowboy that. And now you got to get the liquid nitrogen out there and you got to freeze it. You know, like we learn, we need to do better and we need to stop looking at everything as a bottom line because unfortunately when someone dies, what's their life worth? Well, the law says it's probably a couple million dollars. I think that's great. Um, someone once told me in a safety meeting, they're not field hands, they're human and we've got to stop referring to them as that and I think that that's the best way. To, yeah, I've never looked at it the same since then. Jamie. So there's a saying that if you're gonna say something that's gonna lower the IQ of everybody here, it's better to just not say anything at all. I'm definitely not the adequate person to answer this question. I'll be the first to admit that, so thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Ladies and gentlemen, I think the questions have been exhausted. I think the panel has done a great job at representing yourselves and how you do plan to help the energy state of Texas and how we're gonna progress. I hear a lot of collaboration. I hear accountability in what you're saying, and I believe in those things. We have to hold each other accountable. It is that time, and that, that is our future. So I, I applaud everything that you guys have said, and I appreciate it. Absolutely. We just want to thank everybody for coming tonight. The primary election will be held on March 1st, so everybody get out and vote.
So it, you can look up your, the question was, where, how do you find out where to go vote? If you go to the Secretary of State's website, you can enter in your, your voter information. If you're in Midland, there's all, like, every county has different locations. You can go anywhere in the county. Right on. Yeah, early voting, you can vote at any location, I'm pretty sure. On election day, you have to vote in your precinct. That's important. That's the reason everybody early votes, because you can vote anywhere in the county, usually, in Texas, if you're early voting. Election day, you're going to be stuck to your precinct, so let's get the early voting on so you don't have to worry about where you're going. 